I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, we're exploring the major changes in market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today on the phone is Chase Cunningham, Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the current environment for cyber risk for critical infrastructure. Welcome, Chase. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Chase, let's start with some some perspective and facts. The Russian government, cyber actors, and I assume organized proxies, hacked into U.S. critical infrastructure, namely the energy grid. The government formed the utilities that Russia executed a multi-stage intrusion attack. It's sort of like sort of fact one. Fact two was that we're in a time and place where China is actively executing espionage or theft of IP, both within the critical infrastructure and outside of it. And sort of wrapping that into a ball, John Brennan, the former CIA director, said, although no one wants war, we are now in the gray space between war and peace. That means our critical infrastructure right now is in play in sort of this quasi-war and peace time. Is, is that how you see it from a security and risk standpoint? Uh, yeah. So interestingly enough, I mean, it, it kind of blows my mind that I keep seeing people say that this stuff is news because honestly, it's, it's not. Like this is – every time I see somebody come on the news and say, oh, you know, mother of God, the Russians attacked the infrastructure or whatever else, I'm just like, tell me that water is wet because it's the same stuff that the folks in security and risk have been saying for the last like seven to ten years. I mean, I, I myself have done – papers and blogs and speeches and all kinds of stuff basically saying, you know, that, that we have a lot of bad things going on in, in the network and uh, it's, it's, it's no longer just, you know, oh, crap, somebody found out my social security number. No, we're talking about, you know, shutting down power stations and dams and, you know, national infrastructure. Like the, the days of the Cold War may be over, but the, the cyber war has been raging uh, untethered for the last decade. And it's sort of mind-boggling to me that, that this stuff is even considered to be as like, whoa, this is interesting. I mean, this is uh, – if the, if the Russians got into the power grid, they probably had to ask the North Koreans and, and the Chinese for, you know, access. Right. But are we at a time and place where either the natural digitization of the assets, meaning that the grids or the critical infrastructure is more digital, there's more of an attack plane, the hacking may even be at a constant level – but the total impact or the total potential impact has grown exponentially. Is that part of the equation? Why is sort of capturing people's imagination? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the proliferation that we've had around uh, sort of, you know, it's not necessarily IoT, but sort of IoT-ish type devices and the fact that everything is connected on, on networks everywhere uh, and nothing is really being secured very well has led to the realization that, we will not can we, but we will have some sort of cascading uh, infrastructure attack in the in the future where uh, lots of things go down and it causes uh, lots of bad things to happen for all of us. I mean, if you've ever been without you know Wi-Fi in your house for you know a couple of hours, just imagine how bad it would be if you go you know an entire section of the country without power for a few months. Yeah, we were without power for several days here in the Northeast because of the storms, and it does fundamentally disrupt your day-to-day life. But to that point, is the intent of the hackers different now, more organized now than before, whereas before it might be localized chaos or theft, monetary value. Now you have very sort of liquid secondary markets if they steal something, and you have this broader desire to sow chaos in democracies. Is it is it a different bar that the hackers are trying to get to? Yeah, we've moved, you know, way past the days of like the sort of, I, I always call them the, 
or jerks that live with their mothers and drink too much Monster and wear the hoodies and whatnot. Like this is this is now national level influence operations to cause you know big time harm to a, a nation. And I mean, if you you know if you abstract that away a little bit and even think about what happened during the election and some of the stuff that's come out with Facebook and whatever else, like right now. It's very, very real and very understandable that the bad guys, the hackers of the world, the APTs and whatever, are actively finding ways to sow chaos into, you know, nation states and and have their way with them. You know, whether or not you believe that the the election was totally breached or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. The fact is that bad guys did things with social media and with Internet enabled accesses to influence a country. And that's huge. And we're at a time now where we're talking about digital currency. Obviously, the digital economy is a critically part of just the economic health of any nation. You're talking about electronic voting, to your point on the election. You're talking in the future autonomous vehicles and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications that would have some access and some ability to influence both the system as well as a single vehicle. I mean, we're at a point in time where we're growing the vulnerabilities because we're innovating at the same time where the impact of those vulnerabilities grows. I mean, we, again, I think we mentioned this earlier, we're at a place where there's exponential risk and because there's exponential opportunity. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's our own, you know, sort of fault, right? I mean, in the span of, of basically 100 years, we went from riding on horses to going to Mars. And now, you know, we've gone from uh, having computers that take up entire rooms that can process math problems to being able to uh, influence entire countries and, and take over electrical grids. So, you know, the the exponential factor of this grows every single minute of every day as long as we're innovating and pushing stuff out. And unfortunately for businesses and people and nations, uh, security is always one of those things that people figure out after they put the system online. And it's it's sad, but it, I mean, that's the reality of it. You know, it's money, money talks and BS walks. And when you start talking to security, people can just kind of go, yeah, like that's interesting. We'll get to that in a little bit. Right. And security risk, I mean, the, the, the logic of this is a lot of logic of technology, which is if something has not gone wrong, people don't pay attention to and may not budget for it because they don't feel the acute risk. But then something goes wrong, it goes to a whole lot of different problems, which is the trust of the brand it goes to whether the chief security officer gets lopped off because they, why couldn't they protect the flanks? I mean, we're talking about security risk professionals being essentially at the front line of this quasi-war that's underway right now. That's, that's a hard job. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I worked for the NSA my entire military career. Uh, and, and, you know, we always said as long as we were doing our job, no one ever knew we were there. It's when we, you know, screwed up that all of a sudden everybody knew something was up. So, it's the same sort of thing if you're a security and risk personnel. Like if you're if you're doing your job well and you're actually combating the threat, odds are the, the business folks, the, the the number crunchers and the bottom line people aren't going to actually realize that you're doing anything that they get a real intrinsic value out of. They have to be able to look at it and go, "Are you saving my business from being on, you know breached and losing customer trust and losing revenue and whatever else because of the fact that we're not being attacked." Yeah, there's a concept of, of when you are hacked or post that, it focuses the mind of whether you're funding appropriately the protection of your company, the protection of your brand, and the protection of your customers. But it's only after the hack occurs or is noticed that that kind of equation comes to the fore. The other concept is it's probably true that most companies or all companies are being hacked at some way, shape, or form 
They just don't know it yet. So how do we sort of square the circle on funding this in a way that doesn't have to have the crisis hit before the funding equation comes to the fore? Well, I think that's where, uh, you know, Forrester is doing a good job of leading some of the real thought, thought uh, you know, provocation around this concept, right? So so we have a concept called Zero Trust that John Kindervog, who used to be an analyst at Forrester, sort of came up with and, and that now is, is my baby. And basically the tenets of that are um, flipping the paradigm on its head where for the last, you know, X number of years that we've been doing the security thing, everybody says fix the perimeter or keep the bad guys out. Obviously, that doesn't work. So if we change that system and we restructure it and say, look, figure out what's critical, figure out what you can protect and apply controls to that so that you can actually change the game and take back the initiative from the enemy, all of a sudden you start doing better. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the point that you made about nobody ever uh, really is, is good at this until they've been breached, I think you're absolutely right because it's, it's the folks that still go, well, nobody's you know, I haven't shown up on the cover of USA Today, so I'm not I'm not too worried about it. Well, the reality of it is, is every single asset that touches the network it should be considered to be compromised until the controls that should be put in place have been put there, and you work from the inside of the of the system outward to create those micro perimeters and a follow zero trust methodologies. Is there something specific, Chase, in terms of drilling down into the framework that we should be asking about? Like, what are the pillars of the framework and kind of drilling in there? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we put together what we call ZTX, which is the extension of that zero trust framework. The zero trust is, is basically a concept, right, of, of figure out what's internal to the network, don't trust anything, and then work your way outward. Mm-hmm. ZTX is the next step in that to say, uh, if I'm trying to build a network that follows that zero trust paradigm, what do I use to put in place? And we've got pillars in there that specifically say, you know, control the network, control access, uh, encrypt everything that you can, uh, and basically be able to automate and orchestrate. So, you know, and, and gain visibility and, uh, and access. Um, so it's those, you know, sort of things that are based on solid research and leveraging really powerful vendor technology in the right way to actually take back that initiative. So is that a, is that a systems question or is that a human question or both? And I, and I asked that question because going back to the Russian hack, I mean, they use a technique of spear phishing, which essentially is someone sending a Gmail off to someone and them opening it up, which is a single human point of vulnerability opens up the entire system to risk. Yeah, so that's that's the the impetus of of ZTX, which is the ecosystem side that we're talking about for zero trust, and and it's don't trust anything, don't trust anybody. Like if if it's my network and I'm the CISO and I'm going to embrace zero trust as my sort of strategic guideline, I basically understand that my network fundamentally is compromised, and that the human beings that are clickety clicking on my network are just as compromised as that infrastructure. So I need to apply the same security controls and the same practices and the same methodologies to the humans, just like I would to the network itself. Because just to your point, that's the problem is everyone tries to secure infrastructure and networking devices, and you still got Johnny clicks a lot out there clicking on dumb stuff on the internet that's infecting your network. So you got to secure those humans as well. And access is super important. So what does that look like in motion? So someone embraces zero trust as a concept, as a framework. What do they do to detect 
what has already happened, what is happening, and how do they put it in so they deter what you know may happen? Well, and that I, that's the the cool thing about a about a concept and a framework is you can start kind of anywhere. So let's let's say that I'm a CISO for a, an organization and I'm going to make zero trust my sort of strategic guidepost for the organization security wise. I look around my infrastructure and I get my people in the room and I go, look, where are we? Where are we most vulnerable? And what are the assets that we should protect right now, today? Like this is the mother of God type stuff we got to take care of. Where is it? And it, once you figure that out, you build your security and your controls and perimeters around that, and then you work your way outward. You don't you don't do the old strategy of like let's build really high really strong walls and think that we can protect this environment because you can't it doesn't work you said you came from the nsa is there a difference in your mind in engaging it with this with sort of government entities that have a mission so people are sort of tuned to their role as an agency or department and therefore feel like it's more sort of applicable to be in this war if you will than to a firm called a bank and insure whatever way you want to call it that has civilians that see themselves mostly in a commercial entity, not a security entity. And so therefore, you know, both their attentiveness, they might think of security as an inconvenience or a, a, a poorly placed cost. Is there a different way of looking at it in a privatized world versus a government entity? Um, well, so I'll say that, that this is probably one of the only times in history where uh, every person, every device, every Electron, every government, every business is all in the same combat zone. You know, normally, if you're in a combat environment, you've got a front line, and that's kind of where the bullets are flying and whatever else. What we have in cyberspace is everybody that touches the Internet is in a live-fire combat environment. So those banks and businesses would do well to adopt the same constructs and the same principles that those government organizations use. And whether or not they call it this, I, you know, as someone that's been there in that environment— they actually embrace zero trust across those infrastructures because if you're an individual and you have uh, computer access at you know the National Security Agency, you would better believe that they're looking at every packet that you move across that network. They're monitoring where and when you access things, and they're looking at the data that you access, and they're controlling the devices on that network with extreme prejudice. So it's one of those things where they're doing it, and you'll never hear me say this again, but the government is actually doing pretty well at defending a lot of the security infrastructure, whereas corporate environments, because they're kind of worried about whether or not it's going to impact somebody being happy at work, um, are not doing it very well. So, Chase, this is slightly maybe unrelated, but interesting that in some of the articles I read, there is this notion of going back to the future, right? So in the power grid example, um, specifically, you know, one of the solutions that was put forth is is to kind of return to analog control. Um, but that seems unrealistic and an unrealistic path forward as we digitize more of these assets and infrastructure. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I can understand the thinking behind it, but I think that's that's like saying, uh, you know, we everybody really likes flying on airplanes because you get there really quick. However, comma, we could also walk and get there. I mean, it's, you know, who, who in their right mind is going to be like, let's go back, you know, 50 years in the way that we do things simply because we suck at security. Um, the reality of it is, is, is that this security stuff is 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 not really that hard. It's, it's basic blocking and tackling. Uh, and we just have to be better at that. And, and, 
goal in security is is not perfection. The goal is to be better than the next target. So, you know, it, 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 it's outrunning the zombies. If you and I are running from a zombie horde and you trip and fall, I'm not stopping to pick you up because that's your problem. I mean, that's the way that we should kind of be looking at it. Jen, you got to get going. <laughs> you got to be chased, man. <laughs> but, you know, going back to Jen's question, there is something funny about that comment because it sort of argues that I really don't want to deal with the severity of the risk. I don't really want to deal with the digital reality that is in place and going to get more severe. So I'm going to dream of this analog world that's safe. Then you have the other example, which is, you know, we have this discussion around culture just as it deals with CX or digital transformation, which is changing the the employee's mindset. And yet here comes this other wave of changing a fundamental mindset towards security. It's not It's not impossible, but it appears like changing humans' mindset may be the highest wall to climb. So how do we get people into this mode of it is combat, a form of combat? And to your point, it is is much more sort of hand-to-hand combat, which is each blow is different than the next blow, and I'm constantly in this fight, and I just want to stay slightly ahead of the people attacking me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's great that there's lots of uh, training that takes place nowadays, but the, the majority of the training that you see to, to sort of get people interested is, is, hey, let's watch a couple videos on this that everybody clicks through and, you know, sort of falls asleep at anyway, and then we'll we'll talk about it and, and we'll send you a, a flyer or whatever. Like, that's okay, but a, a lot of times you get way better buy-in when you actually explain to the people that are going to be leveraging this stuff why they should be concerned about it. And what I tell people all the time in, in advisories and con- consultatively is, like, if you're going to put a security program in place, A, you should have a very clearly defined, very concise strategy, not we're going to be compliant or we're going to do security. That's not a strategy. Uh, and you should be able to go to the, everybody that's involved in that across the enterprise and say, look, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, and this is why it should matter to you. Because if you like getting that paycheck, we need to protect this business. Right. So one thing that is often talked about is incident response and doing the paper exercise, essentially immersing the response teams across the enterprise after the breach. Is there a similar immersive experience that you're recommending before the breach? meaning getting at people so that, to your point, they're not just clicking through an e-learning module, but actually understanding the nature of the risk that's that's upon them as they speak. So, you know, it used to be a few years ago that sort of everybody would, would say pen testing and phishing tests were the way to, to get that, you know, across to the enterprise. I, I still think that that's needed, but I, I'm a bigger fan of what we call red teaming, uh, and the difference being, Phishing and pen testing, for the most part nowadays, have become sort of commoditized things that companies do as a service. And they come out, they run some vulnerability scan, they send an exploit, and they send you a bill. Uh, red teaming is, look, we're going to bring some real hardcore heavy hitters, pipe, you know, pipe hitting dudes and gals. We're going to come in there, and we're going to go at this thing like an adversary would, and we're going to actually, you know, do things like. Uh, get into the voice over IP system. We're going to listen to conversations. We're going to target executives. We're going to do, you know, Facebook and Twitter stalking. We're going to target you the way that the enemy actually would, the way that the adversary would, and then train based on that uh, and share that information with everybody to say, like, look, we did this, and we we essentially got in the ring with Mike Tyson and got punched in the face. Now we're better for it. And if, if that is a best practice 
how often does that best practice happen? I mean, is that a common practice or is that an uncommon practice right now? It is becoming more common, but the problem is that a lot of organizations that have been doing fishing and pen testing say, hey, we're going to do red team. Uh, And while they may have the capability to do red team-ish things, if you're actually going to, you know, embrace that concept, you're your business, your organization needs people that that is all that they do, that they are red teamers. Uh, And, I mean, those folks, you know, uh, a lot of them are really good friends of mine, are pretty devious folks by nature. And the fact that they have that mindset and a lot of them come out of the military and intelligence community, um, the the fact that they've been trained and educated and brought up in that sort of nefarious activity, uh, you know, way of doing things, means they're going to find accesses that you didn't even think about. And that that if you find one uh, avenue of compromise that you wouldn't have found during a fishing test or during a pen test, that's worth its weight in gold. So is this one of the attributes or one of the characteristics of Zero Trust, which is to do the red teams, to actually uh, essentially sort of safely assault your own company to understand what the true vulnerabilities are? Yeah, this, I mean, this to me is a, is a key piece of, of uh, being able to have a zero trust uh, strategy or a zero trust infrastructure. And, and, you know, to be perfectly honest, like I've had a couple of companies that in the past that I was talking about going to work at as like a head of security or whatever. And my first question then was always like, well, when are we doing a red team? And if the, you know, if the answer was either I don't know what that is or we're not going to do it, it was like, well, I'm not wasting my time with you because you're, you're done, like game over. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I guess I'd ask the question, how often is the red team sort of encircling the security and risk teams versus, like, I'm a CMO, so is the marketing people alert to this? Are they part of the red team or the product teams? Because this whole concept of security by design assumes a certain level of attentiveness to security at any point of inception of a product or an experience. But I, just because we say it so often sort of tells me that that's probably, again, uncommon, not common as we speak. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not as common as it needs to be, but it's starting to show up a little bit more, especially in some of the more mature organizations that have been through a lot of pen testing and sort of seen that they hit sort of the, the zenith of what they could get out of a pen test. Now they're saying, well, we need to do red team so that we can figure out what's going on next. And, um, you know, to your, to your point there, too, on, on the other pieces of the organization, uh, nobody, you know, ever gets into a network by going after the security individuals. They go after the HR, the marketing, the execs, those folks. So the ability to, to know what's going on there and to be able to lock that down is just as key as anything else. So in this discussion, we talked about the fact that this threat has been going on for a long time. The impact of the threat is growing as we digitize the environment, as we further innovate. And obviously, security and risk professionals have been tuned to this but it's probably true that unless a breach has occurred, other leaders have not. So what does it mean to the CEO or, le- or non-security risk people that only see this as headlines, but maybe not see this as something related to them and their day-to-day world as a steward of the firm and a steward of their customers? Uh, I would say realize unequivocally that your business, your uh future and your your workers are living in a live fire combat environment and it is incumbent upon those of us that are in leadership positions to do better to actually promote security rather than just give it a passing glance and we see it in the news chase this has been scary 
and exciting. Thank you for your time today. <laughs> well, mission accomplished. Then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.